0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental
0: load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly focus pops or lolly mellow pops for kids. And for parents, try three new brainy chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized.
2: Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is Ellen Chesler, and after a long career in academia, I was trained as a historian at Columbia in the 70s, but spent my uh, professional life in government and philanthropy largely, writing a few things along the way. I am currently a research fellow at RBI. This week marks International Women's Day, an annual celebration formalized by the UN in 1975. Call attention to the importance of gender equality and equity. Delegates from the UN's member states are in New York, Um, for two weeks for the annual meeting of the UN Commission on the Status of Women, and thousands more women who provide essential support to this official body as outside experts, advocates, and lobbyists are gathered beside some in person and many more online. Vibrant, non-governmental women's organizations are advancing rights today in every corner of the world and on a global stage. Why is this work so important? First, equality between the sexes has long been recognized as a fundamental moral and legal objective of the UN as an institution. Equal rights for women were inscribed in the UN Charter in 1945 in its foundational Universal Declaration of Human Rights of 1948 and in a standalone convention, the Visionary Convention to Eliminate All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, about which we'll hear more later, adopted in 1980. Second, women's development has long been recognized as essential to the larger development objectives of the UN and of the international community. Improving the status of women is is not not only the right thing to do, as Hillary Clinton uh, long said, but also the smart and essential thing to do if we hope to create peace, prosperity, and a sustainable future for all. Families, communities, countries, and regions simply do better when women are educated, formally employed, legally secure, and politically well-represented. Extensive empirical data from all over the world today informs and supports this thesis. We are fortunate to be joined today by Rebecca Rebecca Adami of Sweden and Fatih, Tima of Algeria, contributors to a new volume, Women and the UN, A New History of Women's International Rights, first published two years ago by Routledge and now available in paperback and also available online through a universal access uh, platform. I was also fortunate to contribute to this important book, which Rebecca co-edited with Dan Plesh and Amitav Acharya. Uh, Rebecca is currently uh, Associate Professor in Education uh, at the University um, of Stockholm, Stockholm University. She's a research associate as well at the Center for International Studies, the School of Oriental and African Studies um, at the University of London, uh, where Fatima is also a research associate, um, although she currently resides in Geneva and I believe works with the UN. We um, will discuss some of the major findings of the book and their relevance to contemporary policy and political debates on today's podcast. My first question then to Rebecca, kind of general question um, to, to begin our conversation. Why does this history matter? Why is it important to uncover and tell the stories of women who came to the UN from all over the world and helped shape body of international law, along with an institutional architecture that seeks to protect women from harm and to secure their rights? In other words, give us the top-line arguments uh, of this anthology.
1: Thank you so much, Ellen. Thank you for the introduction. Uh, I think this is a really important anthology with a really uh, meaningful Meaningful contributions from, from different parts of the world and this is a largely h- hidden history uh, of the United Nations the contributions by women from the global south. Uh, I think most of the listeners that did po- this podcast they might assume that you know the work on gender equality and women's international human rights uh, dates back maybe no longer than Beijing and the 1990 uh, 1995 uh, or to SEDAV but um, this history of women in the United Nations uh, has far um, deeper roots going back to the founding years of the United Nations. Um, I want to give two examples of how women from the global south helped shape international human rights. Um, I will talk more about the role of um, Indian women in the uh, drafting of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, Um, but I also want to mention a already now, um, the contribution by uh, Roland Burke in this anthology from the 1950s already, where he's writing about the first two conventions on women's international human rights. And they were preceding the convention on the elimination of all forms of discrimination against women. You had one convention uh, on consent, minimum age and registration for marriage, and another convention on the political rights of women. Uh, And women delegates from newly independent States like Lakshmi Menon and Begum um, Hamid Ali from India felt that human rights, as they were drafted in the Declaration of Human Rights, were too lofty, and that uh, what was needed was a translation uh, into real rights for women in a binding UN convention. Uh, and women delegates from Pakistan, Iraq, Indonesia, Egypt, Guinea, Togo, Nigeria, and Peru argued for why women under colonial rule should not be accepted from these conventions. you you had Marie uh, uh, Sibomay from Togo. You had uh, Aduke Moore from Nigeria. You had Jean-Martin Kissé from Guinea. And they pointed out that it was unfair of Western representatives in the UN to use custom to exclude women in different parts of the world from their right to vote and economic rights. You had Aziza Hussein from Egypt. Uh, and Artati uh, Marzuki from Indonesia and Carmela Aguilar from Peru. And they felt that reference to custom was used by Western delegates in prejudice ways to hold back the universal universalizing human rights. Um, and it was it, really important, the work that they did, because um, in debating the universality of human rights, they ensured that there was not a clause in these two first uh, conventions, exempting uh, human rights for women living under colonial rule. And this is something that uh, has been taken into the history of the United Nations with other UN conventions that All of the human rights set forth also apply to people living uh, in non-self-governing territories. And this was a really important victory for uh, representatives uh, and women representatives from the Global South in the founding years of the United Nations.
2: So, and the point you're making is that, that Roland Burke also makes in his uh, fine piece in this volume is that women helped define the larger human rights enterprise. I mean, they really shaped the way um, the world thought about human rights, not as an imposition on countries, but as something rising from within um, and from the grassroots. And obviously, most delegates to the UN are elites. They, they represent educated people in their societies. That's a foundational principle of diplomacy. I mean, you have to speak many languages. You have to uh, be comfortable in um, diplomatic circles. Um, but that doesn't mean you don't have a relationship to organizations that represent um, working people in your country uh, and many others, and civil society in your country, um, and the women particularly forged these relationships.
1: I, exactly, I, I could give an example of that uh, in another chapter to the anthology we have uh, uh, Ifa uh, Donoghue and Adam Rowe who have written about the World Plan of Action from 1975 and there you see women um, like uh, Domitila Barrios from Bolivia who came from a community and who argued really strongly against Western feminism and against uh, Um, exploitation by um, western countries of women from the global south and also women from indigenous communities and spoke of you know their experiences of being vital for development and for um forging new international economic ties
2: um let's move on because there's so much to talk about in this book it's such a rich volume and um I think um, adds so many uh, valuable perspectives. But uh, just before we get to some more particulars, I want to talk about your concluding commentary that you wrote with your um, co-editors, Dan Plesch, also of um, the University of London, SOAS, uh, and Amitabh Asherai, a distinguished professor uh, of international relations um, at American University. Um, you use the language of um, Mikhail Ko, Um uh, in in your uh, concluding remarks to describe what the book accomplishes, call it um, restorative archaeology. I, I just love that image. Um, can you explain a bit further what you meant by this? And um, you also in the concluding um, commentary uh, write extensively about the many meanings of agency in international relations. Can you talk a bit more about that?
1: So uh, restorative archaeology archaeology in especially here then in the history of the United Nations is about bringing forth um, knowledge about, uh, a, I would say a counter narrative to the dominant historical narrative of human rights and gender equality uh, at the UN by writing into history, again, the the role of women and how they were actually pivotal in, in the work for international human rights and the, It's really important, the argument by Akaria of Agency from the global South in international relations theory because um, agency has been coupled with an idea of a liberal Western uh, individual. And through um, this kind of um, historical study into the UN and the role of women from the global South, we have another reading of agency because agency is about being able to actually not just taking part, in the debates at the UN, but actually being influ- influential and being part of creating gender equality, of creating this idea of international human rights. So, So I would like to question the idea that We are just highlighting that there were women from the global South in this history. What we're doing and what we're seeing in these really inspiring, I would say, contributions to this volume is that this agency was about shaping the the form and the and the framework of of key international uh, human rights conventions and how we think about human rights today. But this agency has not been recognized before. So in this sense, this is a it's a new historical narrative that is really important.
2: You know, it's so it was so important to me and so eye opening because when I was I'm much older than the two of you and as a young woman studying history in the 1960s and 1970s as an academic kind of left out international relations because I thought of it as kind of boys playing with their toys. And here I found out. That, in fact, there were a lot of girls playing with these same toys and that over the time and continuing today, it's not just that we're at the table as women, but women have shaped the table and shaped the discourse. They are extraordinary um, contributors, not only to practice, but to theory in international relations. And, you know, it, it is when you see this, when you read these examples in this book and read about these individuals and their lives, you, you come away so inspired. And so I'm going to just close out this part of the conversation by reading one line in the commentary, which I just love. You write, the word restorative carries both the archaeological meaning of an object for study and appreciation, but also a sense of buried treasure to illuminate and empower the contemporary world. At the present time, uh, politics contains both efforts to advance human rights uh, and the development of organized global humanity, and also a profound reaction toward patriarchal tribalism. This book, you know, gives you hope that though we've experienced a huge backlash to the um, contributions made by women, both practically and theoretically, and uh, and we've seen um, some large geopolitical circumstances that um, have disrupted uh, the hope we had for this enterprise, um, we still have much to be inspired by and much to be hopeful about. So I want to bring in Fatima to um, the conversation. you and your co-author, Elise Dietrichsen, write about the role that Latin American women played in the shaping the UN Charter and why their agency was for so long forgotten or ignored. You begin your essay with a wonderful quote from Bertha Lutz of Brazil, um, who really deserves a book of her own and I think has recently gotten it, if I'm wrong about that, remind me. Um, can you repeat the quote here? and? Tell us more about this remarkable woman. Maybe maybe she got a film that Fatima was part of, not a book, but a film. Sorry about that. Um, repeat that quote and tell us more about the remarkable women who came to the UN from Latin America and then stood up to American delegates at the UN's organizational conference in San Francisco in April of
3: 1945. Thanks, Helen. Um, so the quote is, the mantle is falling off the shoulders of the Anglo-Saxons and we, the Latin American women shall have to do the next stage of battle for women and that's a quote from Berta Lutz. Um, so the story that I would tell you is just one of the treasures that Rebecca was mentioning that are they're full of them in this volume um, so it's the story of how Latin American women were able to to include gender in the UN Charter and i think it wouldn't be exaggerated to say and to question where would we be today if it wasn't without their contribution i'm not sure i would like to live in a world where they wouldn't have uh, got the influence that they had Um, so to tell the story we have to go back to 1945 Um, we're in san francisco we have hundreds of delegates from all over the world who gathered to sign the first international document um, That is, that then resulted to be like the UN Charter. Um, and amongst all those hundreds of delegates, only 3% of them were women. So, sorry, actually amongst those people who were not only delegates, so everyone, and we only had 3% of women. And actually amongst the delegates who signed the Charter, it was only four women. So it's, it's a very, very small uh, percentage. Uh, however, the result and their impact is, is huge. Amongst those four women, only two of them actually fought for gender equality. So just to go back in history, so the four women were, were Virginia Gilgersley from the US, Yufi Wong from China, and then we have Bertaluz from Brazil and Minerva Bernardino from Dominican Republic. And only Berta Lutz and Minerva Bernardino fought for gender equality.
2: Yeah. And Virginia Gildersleeve, who was president of Barnard College and representing Eleanor Roosevelt, who gets a lot of credit for uh, the, as she deserves, for the human rights agenda of the UN. But they both didn't want to kind of muddy the waters uh, by talking about equality, um, you know, absence of sex discrimination. They were kind of trying to get along with all of the hundreds of male delegates. And so they swept that under the rug. But these two very formidable women from Latin America, countries that didn't have the stature of China and the United States, needless to say, so they were fighting an uphill battle institutionally as well as substantively, Um, they, they, they prevailed. And it's an astonishing story as you tell it. But continue, I'm sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to put an exclamation point on what you're saying.
3: Exactly, Ellen. Um, so this is this is what was interesting for for me as I was doing this research is that I realized not only didn't I I had no idea about this Bertha Lutz and Minerva Bernardino. I never heard of them. What I had in mind was Eleanor Roosevelt uh, at the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and I always thought that she gets the credit. That's what I was told. However, looking at Bertha Lutz's memoir and then also looking at Virginia Gildersleeve's memoir, I realized that not only did Britta Lutz change the UN charter where she included gender equality, but she faced huge opposition from the US, so Virginia Gildersleeve, but also the British. Um, uh, she was an advisor, so she wasn't uh, a delegate. So she did face uh, a lot of uh, of backlash. It, wasn't, it really wasn't an easy task. Um, for example, uh, what she managed to do together with Minerva Bernardino, they were able to insert the word women in the UN Charter preamble where it says that equal rights, um, equal rights of men and women. If you do read the UN Charter, the if it wasn't them, we would have equal rights of men. And actually, Virginia Gildersleeve had removed, she says in her memoir, she had removed the word men from the preamble. Um, And what we found also quite problematic in the way we tell history, which is very political, the UN and um, most of the history books that we were finding were always saying that four women signed the UN Charter and fought for gender equality, which is incorrect. And by doing this, they do something that is quite common, that is just to minimize women's voices to their gender. We're women, so we all think the same. So we had to get history right by saying, well, of course, they were women, but they they didn't agree at all. Um, So the preamble was the first legacy. Then we also have uh, in the first chapter of the UN Charter, Bertha Lutz fought really hard to add the word sex in the list of non-discrimination of human rights. So if it's so if you read it without her, it would have been religion, race and language language. And then thanks to her, She added the word sex. And then I think the biggest achievement, the aha moment, is Article 8 of the UN Charter. So Article 8 of the UN Charter, if you allow me to read it, it says the United Nations shall place no restrictions on the eligibility of men and women to participate in any capacity and under conditions of equality in its principal and subsidiary organs. So. This is actually the first article, is the first legal text that puts men and women at an equal level, um, and 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 the fight, the struggle she had to go through to get this article uh, was really amazing. I we have this uh, this anecdote where Virginia Gildersleeve invites Bertha Lutz for for tea before the negotiations, and she tells her that she hoped that she would she wouldn't bring anything about women, because that would be a very vulgar thing to do. So they had obviously very different uh, views on what feminism is and was. Um, And uh, she also told her, um, uh, and the British advisor actually also told her, well, look women have arrived and if we hadn't arrived the british advisor said well i wouldn't be where i am now uh uh, she 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 had a very a very high position to which Britta lutz replied she said well it doesn't mean that you are here that all women got there and that's where she also she has this uh, very interesting thought where she says well um there is a very interesting psychological paradox where countries that are more advanced on this um tend to take it for granted and also Tend to think that uh, it's uh, it's global, which which it wasn't, and it's still not. Um, and you just see it. You, this
2: is still current, which again and- suggests. I'm mean, I'm just again just emphasizing because in podcasts it's it's nice to repeat a little bit. I think you know the importance of the perspective of small countries, newly independent states, and their recognition that uh, one couldn't assume that if it didn't say, I think the Indian women, Rebecca will remember this uh, at the U In the negotiation of the DHR, said, if you don't say women, if you say men, it will be men when we go home. You know, you can't take for granted that people will see in the rights of men the rights of all people. And, uh, you know, I I think what's so astonishing is that you see that same principle today, in now that we elevate women on a, a particular month or a particular day, but often when the celebration of women's Um, Human Rights Day is over, of of the International Women's Day, you know, the debates go back and forget the importance, um, not only to women, but to the larger well-being of societies of spending every day ensuring that uh, the resources for development um, are distributed to women's and women's organizations, um, that education, employment, and so forth, um, laws protect women's Uh, equal access, and particularly, you know, governments themselves, that women's representation in governments be protected. Um, I want to bring Rebecca back into this, just to say, um, can can you talk a little bit about the architecture at the UN? Um, Just, we need to get to the present day, but um, that uh, results in CEDAW, the convention to eliminate all forms of discrimination against women, and uh, and that also is a is a representation of the role that women from the global south played. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt felt that women's rights could just be subsumed under the General uh, Commission on Human Rights. Uh, others took a different view. Tell us what happened.
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah, so this is uh, this is right after the the San Francisco Conference and the adoption of the UN Charter which sets the mandate for the United Nations and as Fatima said you know the inclusion of of gender equality in the Charter was really important and and Minerva Bernardino from the Dominican Republic who had argued for the need to have a commission on the status of women continued that uh, struggle uh, after the adoption of the UN Charter when they were going to draft a Universal Declaration of Human Rights so human rights are being mentioned in the un charter but they're not defined and and later on they were defined in 30 articles of the udhr and um and here is another i i think really interesting uh, conflict between a woman delegate from uh, the Dominican republic saying that we need an all women commission looking at, you know, the uh, the human rights for women in different parts of the world and really putting that at the forefront of debates since women were in a minority in most of the delegated or in all of the delegations that were represented uh, at the time at the United Nations. Uh, um, Eleanor Roosevelt, who has been you know, celebrated for her role as chair uh, in the uh, Human Rights Commission, she was against the idea that the Commission on the Statutes of Women would have representatives on all the meetings where the Universal Declaration of Human Rights were being drafted and debated. Uh, She felt that uh, Commission on Human Rights could adequately uh, address issues of the rights of man, and this was also another interesting conflict that uh, arose during the, the years from uh, 1946 to 1948, when the Universal Declaration of Human Rights uh, was adopted and that was the conflict between Hansa Mehta from India and Eleanor Roosevelt because Ele- Eleanor Roosevelt wanted to keep the wording of all men in the declaration so all men are equal in rights and dignity all men have the rights set forth in this declaration whereas Hansa Mehta said that well if you write all men that is going to exclude women you know from India and, and from other countries so she wanted um, the wording human beings instead and human rights instead of the rights of of man or uh, and at that time uh, this might have been just a a difference in how you saw the word men as inclusive or not uh, for women but the conflict in itself uh, I would say shows that, you know, women from, from from India, from Pakistan, from Latin America were really important actors. And they had um, a strong agency at the United Nations in these founding years in ensuring that we have international human rights and not just the rights of men.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it
2: And as you write so brilliantly in um, your contribution to this, your chapter that you contribute to this volume that you edited, um, in the 1950s and 60s, the fact that the Commission on the Status of Women exists separate from the Human Rights Commission, first of all, allows it to be a little bit um, free from the uh, Cold War bogging down that happens in human rights, you know, the kind of... uh, Uh, way in which um, the Soviet-US divide, uh, the East-West divide, uh, hijacks the human rights conversation in many ways. But it also gives women a a, a safe space in which to really debate what women's equality means. I mean, we don't have any definition of it. We still don't in the United States Constitution. Almost no constitutions other than the Soviet one, which was sort of not particularly well implemented, had it when the UN debates were taking place. So, this, from a, the standpoint of generating ideas that are important in the 21st century, is hugely important. It's a great takeaway from the UN that's underappreciated and undervalued, and that I think is so well wealth- worth uh celebrating and talking about in more detail uh as we celebrate international women's day it's a it's an example of history really having uh relevance i think and it's continued to have relevance in the debate of cda in the debate over uh, in the security council on women peace and security um where another chapter in the book is you uh point out so well in your introduction and in your commentary, um, points out the role that a very small state like Namibia had. Um, But Namibia is a state where women really understood the importance of security because they'd lived through so many Internal and regional wars.
1: This is something that I, that I find really um, inspiring. Also, with um, with the contributions of this volume, is how the the dominant narrative of key international human rights treaties. You, you mentioned now the resolution 1325 on women's role in peace and security, and how Namibia was was part of advocating for that. But uh, I would, could you also please tell us more about the creation of of, you know, one of the the main. I think this is the convention that all the listeners will be um, really um, familiar with in terms of women's international human rights: the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. And you know, the women who took a role in in creating that, because you you're also really sharing an important counter narrative here, uh, Ellen. Uh, so, um,
2: well, yes, I'm, I I wish I could. Tell this in a more uh, fulsome way. We have we're running out of time, and I do want to talk about today. But let me let me talk a little bit about CEDAW, which, as I said earlier, was adopted in 1980. Today, it enjoys the participation of more countries than any other human rights instrument, and the active engagement of a robust monitoring committee that meets several times a year in Geneva and uh, na- names and shames countries. I mean, it, it it provides again an architecture. I don't think people understand this, where countries have to report on their progress. And that means that not only do they report, but civil society um, issues side reports holding the governments accountable. So you have in this world um, a robust uh, discussion of women's rights um, under the rubric of the UN. I should mention that the one country, uh, shamefully, that does not participate in it is the US, which never ratified CEDAW. Approved in 1979 by Jimmy Carter, sent to the Senate, um, which has a very high bar for treaty ratification in our country, and has never been able to achieve enough votes to uh, so that the U.S. could participate. The U.S. could participate in CEDAW because of Republican opposition all these years, and in the early years, even some conservative Democratic opposition. Um, so that's why it's not very well known in the U.S., but it is employed has, has been employed elsewhere in the world um, to help write constitutions that uh, constitutionalize women's equality, to write case laws, to write public policy on a variety of subjects. It's a very innovative contribution to feminist jurisprudence. Um, it's not a tool of cultural imperialism, as its critics, both on the right and the left, would suggest. Um, the research I did reveals a very different story um, and the role of two women, principally, one from Ghana, sent there by Kwame Nkrumah when he was the first president of the first newly independent state in Africa, The first, one of the first women lawyers in her country or on the continent, and one of the first women judges, uh, educated in London to be sure, uh, studied for the bar um, at the London School of Economics in the first wave of Africans or Indians, people from the colonies who were invited to these institutions, but a woman who had deep roots in both the religion and the culture of her country. She was the granddaughter of a successful woman who had been widowed young and was a trader and understood the importance of women's political and economic participation. She wrote, she, she was the chair of the committee that drafted a declaration on women's rights that became the blueprint of CEDAW. It was passed in uh, the late 60s at the UN. Um, she lived through the um, terrible reaction against uh, Nkrumah uh, and the years of uh, military rule and oppression of women, particularly women market, the women who worked in the markets like her grandmother had. Um, but ultimately, Ghana came out on the right side of that those difficulties in the 1970s and 80s. And she lived to see Um, the writing of a constitution in her own country that protects the equal rights of women, non-discrimination against women. Um, The architect, 10 years later, of the actual convention, uh, which is such a fulsome, capacious document with so many interesting um, examinations of what it means to really talk about equality is a woman named Leticia Ramos-Shahani from the ruling elite of her country. Uh, she was a, a cousin of Ferdinand Marcos. Her brother, Eddie Ramos, uh, opposed Marcos's authoritarian regime and became the first, second democratically elected uh, and democratic ruling president after Corzana Aquino, whom they both supported uh, in their country. They lived through, in other words, many many conflicts in the philippines Um, but they both understood from this the importance to functioning democracies of full participation of women not only in political life but also in social and economic life and in family life and i don't have the time to go through the document but what's fascinating about CEDAW as a as an example of feminist jurisprudence is how carefully it looks at all of these different aspects of mm. um, what constitutes discrimination, all forms of discrimination, as it says, against women.
1: I just wanted to clarify. So from your research, you question the the dominant uh, historical narrative that Sida was a creation by liberal Western feminists. Absolutely.
2: I mean, the one thing you can say, or they were kind of cool on it. Um, the Soviets were afraid it would just be you know an opportunity to call them to account for the absence of uh, implementation of rights that they had in theory guaranteed as part of their revolution in their country the americans were tired of paying for the human rights agenda and didn't want another body um to have to contribute to the one thing i can say for the west is that once the treaty was adopted, the Americans under Jimmy Carter, who, as anybody who knows about the history of human rights will know, was the first president to really recognize human rights as important. um, They really decided if we were going to have a treaty, um, we had to have an implementing body. And CEDAW is one of the examples of the best implemented, as I said earlier in my introduction to to this section, it's the, it's the best introduction. It, it's the it, it's the most rigorous um, implementing body, the CEDAW Committee, um, and really worth studying. There there are large volumes. There are many U.S. scholars that have studied the implementation, um, and many reports written over the years to try um, to encourage U.S. participation um, that show how valuable this treaty has been on the ground all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, let Let's just close out today. We we've been uh, have a few more minutes. Um, when we can um, talk about the contemporary relevance of this history, um, interestingly, I mean, you know, today people listening to, um, to this podcast about women's human rights will think, "Well, oh, it's hopeless." Afghanistan and Iran point to um, the tremendous backlash um, that these rights have um, have produced in their countries, um, and at a time when economic um, and other circumstances, globalization has so many discontents that are legitimate um, and women have sort of become the, uh, an easy target for globalization's discontents. I mean, men who um, uh, have not, or in countries that have not succeeded well uh, in, a, in a globalized economy um, that has been set back by so many neoliberal economic policies you know find an easy target in women's rights advocates right you know it's your fault it's the women's fault um the priority theme um for this csw um is actually how the digital revolution has fostered this strong backlash against women um amplified hate speech and uh, amplified examples of violence against women and other forms of misogyny Um, it also recognizes however that the internet uh, has given women uh, a a digital meeting space and has in many ways um, helped grow uh, the resistance um, and the global community of women's groups all over the world Um, so like so many things it's not perfect and it's not um, good either. We have to see it as kind of for what it um, has produced, but also for the many problems that it has amplified. Um, in addition, I, I read this morning on Pass Blue, the excellent blog of about the UN that it's produced by the New School, um, that the Prime Minister of Pakistan, who is Benazar Bhutto's son, the first woman Prime Minister of Pakistan, who was a huge spokesperson for women's rights and may indeed have uh, paid for that with her life, um, has spent a lot of time this week in meetings to talk about the many uh, interpretations of women's rights in Islamic tradition. Um, I, something Fatima, I think, could talk to. So. I guess just in closing out, um, I'd like you to comment on these various factors and other developments of of recent decades that have both put some brakes on the women's agenda, but also given us cause for hope and optimism and and helped grow um, opportunities uh, for women in all corners of the world to claim their rights. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what you find? concerning most, and then, because it's nicer to end on optimism, um, some aspect of what gives you hope for the future. Maybe we should bring Fatima in first, because um, the two of us have been talking a lot, and then uh, finally let you close out, Rebecca. Fatima.
3: Thanks, Ellen. Yes, indeed. I think it's uh, it's easy to be... (laughs) Um, drawn in the negative and worrying spin when you when you look at uh, today's situation however I do agree with you where there are a lot of positive um, yeah I mean we do have a lot of positive signs that um, that would tell us that yes we're moving in the right direction maybe not fast enough. I think like two two weeks ago, I was hearing the UN Secretary General mentioning 300 years that we need to achieve uh, gender equality. So obviously, at this pace, we're, we're, we're moving really slowly. However, what I see around me, I find like this volume, for example, is an effort to shift the hegemonic narrative that we've been taught so far. Um, and why is it important? It is important because it builds ownership around ideas. Um, so myself coming from a country that I would consider from the Global South, Algeria, I I do feel much more entitled and I do feel ownership around ideas such as feminism. Um, and And this feeling has grew stronger thanks to this research and has grew stronger thanks to the book that uh, Rebecca and Dan have edited. Um so I feel like we are finding more and more of those voices. Uh we are offering a counter narrative. It's not only the dominant uh narrative that is prevailing
2: and and only this is makes me really hopeful. Rebecca some closing comments.
1: Yeah, so uh, I think that um, I was initially also buying into the more theoretical argument given by feminist and um, post structuralist scholars who I'm really inspired by, but who said that human rights was just a Western male project. Uh, But uh, looking into the history, we see that this has been a false presumption. And, um, you know, in the same way that history has silenced the the role of of women i feel a hope now in uh post colonial theory and um uh, um decolonial theory that questions, you know, white ignorance uh, in in the sense that, for example, in Sweden, you know, the, the Swedish government uh, took a role in discriminating against our indigenous uh, population and women in the Sámi population through legislation. And I think that those kinds of histories need to be unearthed and, and talked about so that, um, you know, so that we get a new understanding of um, what kind of structures have actually been creating human rights violations and been hindering uh, equality and justice so as not to continue tapping into this like ignorant and also uh, false narrative that. Um, that uh, western uh, liberal uh, discourse is um, the owners of of international human rights
2: right thank you so much um that's it for today's episode i want to thank rebecca and fatima uh once again for taking time to be with us and for sharing their many insights about the role of women and particularly women from the global south in shaping modern international human rights discourse uh, i hope you our audience enjoyed this conversation and will remember to subscribe and rate International Hist- Horizons on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I also want to thank Oswaldo Mená Aguilar for his technical assistance, as well as to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song, International Horizons, as the theme music for the show. Uh, this is Ellen Chessler saying thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us for another episode of International Horizons.